Hello and welcome back to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Another year rolls by and there's another European Society of Medical Oncology conference in Madrid that Josh and I don't go to. Nevertheless, Josh and I are going to virtually trek across the globe to Madrid and bring you, our lovely listeners, all of the latest and greatest updates from ESMO 2023. Josh, how are you? It's great to have you with me on this great virtual journey that we're about to undertake. I'm doing just spectacularly, Michael. And I was thinking about it. Have you seen the new documentary called Beckham? (laughs) No. I can't say that uh, when we sat down to record, this is where I thought we'd end up, but anyway. (laughs) Well, I was watching it with my wife the other day. Uh, Nothing oncology related. But he did did play for a, I think, a team in Madrid for like a year or two. Real Madrid, yes. Yeah, so they they, um, did terribly, I think, initially when he played with them, but then they got better. It was a story of, you know, Last Man Standing, kind of, you know, the underdog. It was very good. Well worth a watch if anyone is at ESMO and needs a bit of a break or if you don't want something oncology-related. And for all of the soccer aficionados listening, that is the only time you will hear Real Madrid referred to as an underdog. <laughs> well, they were, well, yes, they were undefeated, right? And then they, anyway. As Perpetually have... <laughs> undefeated. Anyway, this is completely, a uh, completely different podcast. Um, so for our first episode today, much like our ASCO sessions earlier in the year, we're going to select the highlights, the things that grabbed our attention from each individual tumor stream. And we're just going to release these at a truly ludicrous rate. Today is the first episode and we are going to start in the grimmest of tumor streams, that is tumors of the central nervous system, GBMs, meningiomas, et al. There's surprisingly a fair amount to talk about in the CNS space at ESMO, and so we've picked three studies that uh, piqued our interest somewhat. Josh, why don't you take us away with the Regoma OS study, because this has a number of interesting talking points. It does, Michael. And it was actually slightly unclear when I listened to the talk about the outcome of this study and where it fits into in the landscape of GBM. But Regoma OS was a large Italian multi-center prospective observational, remember observational in this case, study analyzing regorafenib efficacy and safety in recurrent GBM patients. I, I laughed a little bit because most, most GBM patients are recurrent. So realistically, this is second line. Which is still an area of need. Right? A huge, beyond, huge area. Beyond, bev- beyond bevacizumab, once you burn through your temozolomide and your radiotherapy and your surgery, there's precious little. Yes, there's pretty much nothing. So there's controversy regarding this study already. But before I get to that, let's talk about the background. So regorafenib, which is a multi-kinase inhibitor, had showed promising results compared to lamustine with a median overall survival of 7.4 versus 5.6 months. Note the terrible overall survival in patients with recurrent glioblastoma. This was a prior trial called Regoma. And it was a phase two study, not a phase 
three study. The controversy here lies in the prior trials, which was the EORTC26101. And what they found, so the limitation of the Rogoma, despite, well, first of all, not a phase three trial, but the other thing is there's discrepancies between how efficacious lamustine is compared to other trials. For an example, lamustine, the median overall survival in the EORTC trial was nine months versus 5.6 months in the Rogoma study, which as our previous discussion on GVMs talk, there's all these nuances with GVMs, whether they're methylated, unmethylated, IDH, and these very much infer different prognoses depending on where you sit on that spectrum. Another issue is that TKIs are mainly aren't particularly effective because they have poor diffusion against agents in the blood-brain barrier. So that's something else to talk about. The primary endpoint for this study, Michael, was overall survival, and it's in a real-world setting. And the secondary endpoints included progression-free survival, objective response rate, duration of response, and safety. Inclusion criteria over the age of 18, histologically confirmed, and they had to have recurrence after chemoradiotherapy, and they have at least one bidimensional measurable target lesion with one diameter of at least 10 millimeters, good ECOG performance status, which I think could be quite difficult to find after someone who's got a recurrent GBM, at least my limited GBM experience, and have preserved liver function. The methodology, they were given regorafenib 160 milligrams for three weeks, then a single week off, and an MRI before the commencement of the trial, and then every 8 to 12 weeks thereafter. So the results, and as we like to say here on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, the juicy part, 190 patients were enrolled from 28 centers across the beautiful Italy. 60% were already on steroids and 42% were methylated. IDH with wild type was 94% and the median follow-up was 20 months. At the time of that analysis, 80% of people had died. The median number of cycles of regorafenib was 3 So the median overall survival for this trial showed was 7.9 months and the median progression-free survival was 2.6 months. When you look at the neuroradiological response, so you've got an image, you're having a look at it, you're comparing it to the prior image, the disease control rate was 22% and the objective response rate was abysmally low 7.4%. No one had a complete response. 7.3% had a partial response, and 14.6% had stable disease. Mikey, 78% of patients had progressive disease on, I'm assuming, first imaging based on the number of cycles of regorafenib. So pretty abysmal. That is incredibly abysmal. Yes. um, We're not starting well with uh, me not really knowing Real Madrid's name and now uh, this. Moving to the third line treatment, so people who did survive and moved on to another line of therapy, there were 78 in this cohort. So this was fumatustine or lamustine, which is 65%, bevacizumab, which is 14%, and re-challenged with temozolomide of 6.4%, and a smattering of random other choices which were not mentioned. Adverse events, grade 3 to grade 4 was 22.6 and predominantly was a skin tox. And the thing when we get to the conclusion of this trial, they're trying to prove Rogoma versus Rogoma OS. 
and they wanted to assure the, I guess, the medical community that the outcome of overall survival and progression-free survival for for this drug was equivalent despite the controversies given its lamustine sort of poor response rate. And what they found was that in the Rogoma OS, there was slightly different cohorts. So patients were older. Most patients had steroids at baseline and less patients had third-line therapy. When you compare the two trials, Rogoma OS was almost identical uh, with 7.9 months overall survival versus 7.4 months in Rogoma. The median progression-free survival was 2 versus 2.6 months, favoring Rogoma OS. The dose reduction that we saw in the Rogoma was 17% and Rogoma OS was 36%, and the grade 3 adverse reactions was 56% in Rogoma and 36.8% in Rogoma OS. And so what's the take-home message from this? The take-home message is that the real-world experience with regorafenib was quite similar to their Phase 2 trial, which is, I think, what they were actually trying to prove. There remains significant unanswered questions regarding their prior trial on lamustine and why it did so poorly, because there was no comparative arm for this trial. It was all observational. And the next question that I did not have an answer to, Michael, is how do you sequence this? Because bevacizumab has quite good response, so is regorafenib than what you use after this. But ideally, and when I looked to on some of the guidelines, you should probably be referring people to clinical trial if the median duration of being on treatment was three months. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would also say that the flip side to that is that finding clinical trials that are likely to work and will accept a GBM patient can be quite difficult. So if you do happen to have or know of a trial that is specifically catered towards GBMs, then would definitely recommend you refer your patients on to that centre before trying things like lamustine or regorafenib. Uh, As you said, Josh, the numbers there are pretty abysmal. Uh, And I I guess if you're going to put your your rose-tinted glasses on for this study, you can say that regorafenib is another option. And in the GBM space, because it's been such a, a... a dead space for for so long, the addition of further options is never a bad thing. But where you sequence it to your question, I think you'd have to put it fairly late on. That's true. So I think it depends on if there's a trial available that would accept them. And the only other controversy to bring up was the disease control rate. In the Rogoma study, it was 44%. In the Rogoma OS study, it was 21.9%. So that's an unanswered pretty significant difference. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's very difficult to sort of take any practice changing ideas away from this study, to be honest, because there's no uh, comparison um, and it's a prospective observational study, which you mentioned before. So there's no controls. Um, I don't think there were too many inclusion criteria aside from a good functional status. So there's there's a lot of questions about this study. So, I mean, if you can get it, there's probably enough data that in the absence of any other options, it is something to consider, but it's definitely not something we think will be unseating temozolomide anytime soon. Wise words as always. But speaking of 
offering early phase trials and Michael being the aficionado here of early phase trials, do you want to talk about your phase one dose expansion of SYHA1813? Yes, so we do love a phase one study on this podcast. We don't talk about them this that much, but we've said before that phase one is where a lot of the interesting science happens. You're taking drugs that are basically, as I tell my patients, first making that jump from the lab, from animal models into humans. They're frequently first in human. And there's a lot of theory and a lot of logic. So, you know, you have a target, this drug inhibits that target, ergo the drug should work. It doesn't always work out that way. But the phase one areas is really work, is really focusing on things like safety uh, and dose finding. So there's not a whole lot of efficacy, but it does produce some interesting results. Now, this uh, phase one dose expansion study um, of CHA1813 which is a vascular endothelial growth factor receptor, or VEGFR, 1 to 3, and a colony stimulating factor 1 receptor, that's CSF1R inhibitor, in patients with recurrent meningioma. Now, meningioma is not something that we see very frequently in oncology because the majority of meningiomas are, ben- are benign. Approximately 5% or less than 5% of meningiomas are malignant. However, meningiomas, because the skull is an area of very limited real estate. Any large mass, even if it is quote-unquote benign, can cause problems. And within the first one to two decades after initial surgery, more than half of meningiomas will recur. And at that point, they may convert from a benign to a more aggressive morphology. I had one patient who had a just such a tumour that was very, very aggressive, probably uh, aggressive and malignant from the start, to be honest. Uh, but it was basically like having a very aggressive glioblastoma in effect. According to the author, I've actually quoted this here because I thought it was a great quote. The current treatment for uh, uh, malignant meningioma is surgery, surgery, and surgery again. We sometimes do use things like bevacizumab, in the setting of radiation necrosis, because radiotherapy can be used for meningiomas as well if they're unresectable, uh, but there aren't that many systemic therapies, certainly none that are approved and used in common practice. CHA 1813, as mentioned, targets VEGFR 1 to 3, so VEGF receptors 1 to 3, and colony stimulating factor 1 uh, receptors, uh, with a view that this will produce a response. From the impression I got, this study originally set out to include GBMs and focus on GBMs. And then they sort of looked at meningiomas and said, hey, why don't we also look at uh, this population? The inclusion criteria were fairly simple. Phase one studies tend to have, uh, at least medically speaking, fairly broad inclusion criteria. Uh, but patients had to be greater than 18. They had to have recurrent meningioma that was not amenable to surgery. And they had to have a uh, Karnofsky performance status of greater than or equal to 60. Now, a lot of phase two, phase three trials will mandate an, a KPS greater than 70 or greater than 80. So this is probably uh, similar to an ECOG of one to two. CHA1813 is an oral agent, which is another bonus, obviously, saves people coming in for an infusion every couple of weeks. Uh, and it was given at either 15 or 20 milligrams daily until 
disease progression or unacceptable toxicity. The primary endpoints for were the overall response rate and the progression-free survival at six months. The secondary endpoint uh, was disease control rate and safety. As with a lot of phase one studies, very, very small numbers. We're talking 11 patients in total. So this is purely a signal finding study. You can't really take any or make any broad sweeping generalizations from this, but it is obviously where pretty much every agent that is used in medical oncology these days started. All patients had at least one previous surgery for their meningioma. The maximum number of surgeries, Josh, was four. Can you imagine having four separate surgeries on your brain and brain cavity and this thing just keeps on coming back? It's been really, really unfortunate. Michael, there'd be nothing left. Well, no, you'd think that. I mean, you would hope that um, that the meningioma remained extrinsic, but there would be no meninges. Seven out of the 11 patients had uh, previous radiotherapy. And interestingly, two patients had metastatic disease. That's uh, not something that uh, you see very frequently with meningioma. I suspect the sites of metastases, they were just intracranial. Three out of the 11 patients were dosed on 20 milligrams of CHA-1813. The remainder were on 15 milligrams. Now, the juicy part, tumor regression was noted in 10 out of 11 patients, which is fantastic. The overall response rate was 45.5%. The PFS at six months was 75.8% and the disease control rate was 81.8%. The majority of um, adverse events were grade one to two. Remember phase one studies, this is really what you're looking at. The responses are nice, but the um, adverse events and safety is what you're looking at. And there are a couple of things to note here. Elevated blood pressure was noted in four out of the 11 patients. That's probably not unexpected. We're talking about a drug that is similar in many respects to bevacizumab, and we know that bevacizumab can cause hypertension. Four patients also had proteinuria, which is probably a consequence of the elevated blood pressure, again, similar to bevacizumab. More concerningly, three patients had ST or T-segment ECG changes. Now, they didn't go into detail about what these actually were, whether there were three patients having STEMIs or, you know, QT prolongation, T-wave inversion, ischemic changes, rhythm changes. We don't know. Also, interestingly, uh, four patients had an elevated TSH and three patients had uh, other thyroid issues, hyper and hypothyroidism. Not really sure uh, what the causative action was, but yes. Um, So in conclusion, a very early trial with uh, some promising clinical activity. There were some questions that I had about the adverse events, but again, very small numbers, and we just need more data in a larger study. But Josh, this could address an area of need. I think when it comes to any intracranial lesion of any variety, there's always going to be a massive area of need. Absolutely. Moving on and wrapping up very quickly, Josh is making a a wrap-up gesture uh, to me right now. (laughs) Not a huge Uh, wrap-up, just a small wrap-up gesture. Just just hurry the hell up, Michael, you're talking too much. (laughs) The final study that we'll talk about today is a Phase 1b and Phase 2 study of Glastigib in combination with temozolomide and radiotherapy in patients with newly diagnosed glioblastoma. Now, the background to this, obviously, as we have said, as anyone who treats glioblastoma will tell you, 
GBM has a very poor prognosis. I've even written in brackets here, duh. For reference, the median survival was 14.6 months in the original study of the Stupp protocol, which is the uh, basis, the bedrock on which our first line treatment of GBM is founded. The five-year overall survival rates are around 10%, so dismal. You might have heard of this pathway called the Hedgehog Pathway, notable for Sonic the Hedgehog. There is literally a Sonic Hedgehog protein, which I just think is fantastic. But the Hedgehog Pathway has a critical role in the embryonic period. It's anyone who remembers their embryology will, that's probably where you would have heard of this protein first, but it also has a role in carcinogenesis. Hedgehog protein levels are significantly increased in GBMs and have been implicated in the migration, invasion, and angiogenesis processes. Hedgehog signaling leads to glioma stem cell maintenance, which is one of the hallmarks of GBM therapy resistance. Inhibition of this pathway may overcome uh, temozolomide resistance, decreasing the MGMT efficacy, and this could be, this is the theory, independent of the methylation status. Again, Lots of good logical scientific theories, but let's see how they actually uh, stack up in real life. Glastigib is an oral inhibitor of a smoothened hedgehog protein, which is currently approved for acute myeloid leukemia. So not something that a lot of our listeners will have had much experience with. This was a multi-center open-label study with a phase one and phase two component. In the interests of time, we'll focus on the phase two component because that is the juicier bit. Patients were enrolled who had newly diagnosed glioblastoma who were candidates for Stupp protocol chemoradiotherapy. Glastigib was added to the standard Stupp protocol from the start until progressive disease, non-compliance, toxicity, and the maximum duration of treatment was two years. The primary endpoint was overall survival in terms of a 15-month survival rate. So basically, they're not asking for much. They're basically asking for anything more than an average of 15 months of overall survival. Secondary endpoints, progression-free survival, safety and tolerability, pharmacokinetics, changes in glucocorticoid use and neurological status, which I really like. It's a practical aspect and gives us a sense not just of the quantity of life, but the quality of life. Now the results, and unfortunately it's not great. With a median follow-up of 14.8 months, the median overall survival was 15.3 months, so probably a week or two longer than the average found in the original Stupp study. The 15-month overall survival rate was 51.8 months, so bang on that sort of average. The 12-month overall survival rate was 69%. The 24-overall survival rate plummets down to 29%. However, after data lock, which was at 20 months, 22 patients remained alive. The story is similar for progression-free survival. So the median progression-free survival is seven months, which is pretty much, you know, you end up and then at the next scan, you've progressed, which is very commonly what we see. Again, they stratified patients based on the methylation status of their MGMT, and those with methylated disease continue to do better, which is something that we know in GBM and its response to temozolomide. The 15-month overall survival rate for methylated patients was 69.8%, whereas for patients with unmethylated GBM, it was 39.5%, so a huge difference. The median duration of treatment was 6.9 months, and the main cause of discontinuation in uh, almost two-thirds of patients was progressive disease. Now, they say steroid use and cognitive status did not suffer worsening over time. They didn't 
significantly reduced. And the graphs they showed did seem to indicate that this was the case for cognitive status, which is great, but they do appear to show increasing corticosteroid dose at later visits compared to baseline. Uh, but the range of doses did appear to be quite wide. So again, you probably can't take too much from that. You also can't take too much from it because there's no control arm. We don't know whether glastigib actually improved that. Uh, in terms of toxicity profile, the most common adverse events with glastigib monotherapy, remember that patients could have it for up to two years or a year and a half after completing STUP, were vomiting, fatigue, alopecia, musculoskeletal disorders, and decreased neutrophil count. The other toxicity is vomiting, leukopenia. They're all fairly uh, standard with temozolomide, and most of them were seen during the period of STUB. So to conclude, and to conclude our episode at large, the primary objective for uh, this study was unfortunately not REACH. There is the potential for good symptom control, though I would like to see sort of more robust data for this. Almost a third of patients were still alive at data cutoff, and that's something that the uh, presenter was at pains to sort of emphasize, I guess. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, with this data set, uh, Glastigib doesn't appear to improve outcomes significantly. There are long term survival updates going ahead, and it will be interesting to see that. And there's also some exploratory molecular sub studies underway. Um, and it's important to note that the monotherapy aspect of glastigib appears to be fairly well tolerated. So you're not losing much from this, but unfortunately you're not gaining too much either. Sad face. I think you could just summarize this whole space <laughs> like that. We could it's have just, just saved our listeners about half an hour and just said sad face. It's just so it's so it's so um so difficult, isn't it? Because there are all these phase one trials of potentially preclinical data showing something and they all seem to fall really flat from the standard of care, which is not amazing. No, no. And I guess this does show that the treatments that we have at the moment are really the creme de la creme, the cream of the crop. So many uh, agents come out of the lab. Everyone's really positive, really jazzed about them. You might have uh, a handful of patients that do really well, which is always fantastic but they never make that next step. And we've talked about this uh, with previous episodes where everyone gets very excited about an agent and then it just sort of falls flat before the end. So remains to be seen. We can't count any of these agents out just yet, but nothing really blowing our socks off in the CNS space. But Josh, I'm sure there is uh, plenty of stuff to blow our socks off in tomorrow's episode. Do you want to just... Tell us what we'll be covering. Yeah, we'll be covering metastatic breast cancer, the creme de la creme of all things breast, but essentially it is going to be a wild ride with heaps of really interesting research. Yes, and hopefully more positive outcomes than today's episode. We started on a downer. It can only get better from here. That's Both in quality of, of information and quality of podcast. Like Real Madrid, you know, going to be up the top. All right, we'll see you guys tomorrow. <laughs> see you tomorrow. <laughs>
resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com.